the top question we've received from physicians around the country is about EUA. How can physicians obtain TPOX? How has this process been simplified? And are there any plans to simplify this process further? That's Dr. Sandra Freihofer. In part two of this series on moving medicine, our experts continue the discussion on what physicians need to know about TPOX. Dr. Freihofer is again joined by experts Dr. Adam Sherwatt, Dr. Brett Peterson, and Dr. Timothy Wilkin. Here's Dr. Freihofer. The top question we've received from physicians around the country is about EUA. So here's the question. TPOX is already approved for use in the European Union as a treatment for monkeypox. There's already a significant amount of clinical outcome data from IND patients. European patients, JAMA and Lancet peer-reviewed articles, et cetera. Many scientists and physicians have advocated for immediate EUI based on this data. So why isn't that data being taken into consideration in addition to the risk-benefit ratio? Why is it not at least authorized to EUA to improve access here? And the bottom line, what additional data do we need uh, on TPOX to, to, to have EUA granted? FDA's Dr. Sherwatt, I think you're in the hot seat for this one. First, I want to provide a short overview of the regulatory framework related to emergency use authorizations. It's important to note that there are two types of relevant declarations, the 319 declaration and 564 declarations. A determination under Section 319 of the Public Health Service Act that a public health emergency exists, such as the declaration made on August 4, 2022, does not enable FDA to issue emergency use authorizations. A separate determination and declaration are needed under Section 564 of the Federal Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act to enable FDA to issue emergency use authorizations provided other statutory criteria are met. On August 9, 2022 and September 7, 2022, the HHS Secretary declared under Section 564 of the Federal Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act that circumstances exist justifying the authorization of emergency use of vaccines for monkeypox and in vitro diagnostics for the detection or diagnosis of infection of monkeypox virus, respectively. Neither of these EUA declarations cover the emergency use of therapeutics for treatment of monkeypox disease, and therefore FDA is not enabled to issue EUAs for therapeutics for the treatment of monkeypox disease at this time. Importantly, even if the requisite declaration for therapeutics were to be made, FDA would need to consider the circumstances and appropriateness of an EUA for a particular medical countermeasure and determine whether the criteria for issuance of an EUA have been met. Putting aside the explanation of the regulatory framework, we have been working very closely with our colleagues at CDC to fine-tune access via the expanded access protocol and with our colleagues at NIH and academia to facilitate the development of a randomized clinical trial that is now open for enrollment. As previously noted, at present, we have no data from randomized controlled trials demonstrating the safety or efficacy of ticoviramat for the treatment of monkeypox in humans. Data from randomized controlled trials are critically needed to address knowledge gaps related to efficacy, safety, pharmacokinetics, and to systematically monitor for the development of resistance to ticoviramat, all of which are essential in guiding clinical and regulatory decision-making. 
Therefore, healthcare providers should encourage their patients with monkeypox infection to be evaluated for enrollment in the randomized controlled trial. Wow. It sounds like T-pox EUA is caught in a lot of red tape, but thank you for, for that very complete answer, um, which leads us to the next question. How can physicians obtain T-pox? How has this process been simplified? And are there any plans to simplify this process further? Uh, Dr. Peterson, I know CDC has tried to make this easier. I guess it's it's easier than it could be, but can you reinforce what you told us earlier about that process, please? Sure, so in terms of requesting Ticaviramat, uh, the best first source is always your state, territorial, local health department. Um, as I mentioned, many of those jurisdictions do already have Ticaviramat available and pre-positioned. Um, in terms of the process of implementing the EAIND, as I mentioned, um, treatment can be started as soon as informed consent is obtained. Um, all of the required forms um, can be submitted after treatment is initiated. We've drastically decreased the number of forms that are required, and uh, many of the other processes have been made optional. So all of this is with the intent of simplifying the process of using this product um, under our EAIND. So I counted about four required forms, and there are about eight others that were optional. So it does sound like uh, you've simplified the process a, a good bit. So thank you there. Uh, another question, who is not eligible to receive TPOX under the EAIND? Can you answer that one as well, Dr. Peterson? We sure. So the only persons who are not eligible to receive treatment with ticavirumab under our EAID are those who are not willing to sign the informed consent or those who have allergies to the product or any of the ingredients of the product. Otherwise, the EAID is open um, for uh, patients of all ages. Um, there is weight-based dosing, but um, there's no age restriction in uh, using the product under our EAIND. So yeah. the severity of disease don't, no, doesn't matter. So a single lesion would qualify for the EAIND. Well, we would refer to our uh, treatment considerations. Um, obviously, those are the individuals that we think would benefit most from um, treatment with ticavirumab. So I think those would, what we would point to as uh, the guiding principles for who should be receiving uh, treatment. But in terms of eligibility, um, everyone is eligibility under the requirements of the EAIND. So you mentioned weight-based dosing. How many different size doses, dose capsules does it come in? It's or, a single or... dose capsule that's available, 200 milligrams. Um, it's when you get below 13 kilograms uh, that you would need to have partial dosing. Um, and that, that's where some of the uh, challenges lie in oral dosing. So how do you do that in your study? Do you just take the capsule apart and put it in a baby capsule or what do you do? That's not something I guess practitioners could do, but. Um, uh, basically for the clinical trial, um, it's we have uh, intensive instructions for the caregivers of the young children, but basically the contents of the capsule are mixed in a fixed amount of liquid mixed appropriately. And then the relevant portion is drawn up that can then be administered to the child. Uh, Dr. Peterson, is that uh, what CDC is recommending as well uh, for the for physicians out in, in general practice? 
Yes, that's correct. For those patients between three kilograms and 13 kilograms, our EAIND also does include instructions for um, opening the capsules and mixing the contents um, with uh, various food products so that, that can be uh, apportioned out. Also note that there is an IV formulation um, available um, which can be used as well for some of those uh, situations where there's uh, a need to ensure uh, appropriate um, dosing uh, if there's any concerns about absorption of the drug. And again, with IV formulation, that's a weight-based weight dosing as well. It's important to mention that the IV formulation, it, correct me if I'm wrong, has cyclodextrin, which has some concerns for renal toxicity. Uh, so that's, you know, the, the risk-benefit does sort of does change with IV as compared to oral. So I saw that you, you want to take it with a, a fatty meal. So what kind of foods do you recommend? I usually think of mixing um, medicine with applesauce for little kids, but I guess apple, applesauce is not exactly fatty. What do y'all recommend specifically for these little ones? Um, it's been studied uh, with milk um, mm -hmm. and chocolate milk, but basically it's uh, with our pediatric colleagues, anything you can get get to, to mix it in that the kid will take is important, but uh, definitely trying to get some fat in there. So ice cream, yogurt, things like that. Chocolate milk works every time. Okay, um, Dr. Wilkins, this next question, I wanna begin with you. Our AMA has a Center for Health Equity, so we're really concerned about this. Uh, how uh, are we ensuring equitable access to TPOX? And then uh, after, after Dr. Wilkins gives his point of view, Dr. Peterson, love to hear from you as well. Well, I think the way that we get equitable access is to get unfettered access uh, to the drug. So for it to be available by a simple prescription and stocked widely in pharmacies. And so that is not the case now. And we cannot get there unless we uh, commit to enrolling the clinical trial, unless we get efficacy data. I just think it's important to point out that there is no efficacy data in humans for any condition. And so although it's been approved in the EU, that it's, it's not based on efficacy data. While certainly the experience has been that it well tolerated, people seem to do well, this is not and generally not a lethal disease and it has a very subjective outcome. And so we really, to feel totally confident in our therapies, we need, we need randomized data. And uh, should we need to develop new therapies, it gets incredibly complicated if the therapy you're comparing it to has never been established for efficacy. So I do think that the way that we get access is to have this randomized data so that we can be approved on a more normal pathway. Um, for our clinical trial, we work with clinical trial sites that have a historic, have historically uh, uh, enrolled um, communities of color in research. Um, there, a lot of the studies have done a tremendous amount of studies in um, HIV infection. Um, so we have longstanding collaborations with communities and uh, community organizations to, to really uh, increase enrollments of those key populations. Medicine doesn't stand still. And at the AMA, neither do we. AMA members are physicians like you who are shaping the future of medicine. Become a member today and join the movement. Visit ama-assn.org slash movingmedicine. Thank you so much. Dr. Peterson, do you have anything to add? I know with my work with the ACIP, we always talk about equity concerns with every vaccine we discuss. 
Yeah, absolutely. So I certainly agree with uh, Dr. Wilkins' comments. And I would add that from the EAIND um, uh, perspective, we also are working diligently to uh, simplify that process to uh, improve access through the number of um, uh, measures that we've discussed already. Uh, we are also working closely with our state partners to ensure that um, they are able to easily order the product. And in many cases, as I mentioned, pre-position the product so it's uh, available and accessible for immediate use. And lastly, we continue to monitor the information that we receive about the individuals receiving Ticavirmat under our EAIND and comparing those demographics to what we're seeing in the outbreak at large to see if there's any discrepancies um, between who's coming down with monkeypox and who's being treated so we can identify any um, inequitable uh, treatment that may be occurring. Dr. Peterson, how much does T-Pox cost? So T-Pox is available free of charge. Um, in addition, um, there is, uh, if there is a desire to do the PK monitoring or to do testing at CDC for serology or other virologic testing, um, antiviral resistance testing that can also be done free of charge. However, there's not any funding to support uh, any additional laboratory testing, um, but the product itself is free of charge. Great. And uh, do any of you know what billing code should be used for TPOX administration? It's prescription of oral drugs. So you would use your standard office-based uh, visits or video visits, telehealth um, codes. Thank you. All right, what does the current data demonstrate about efficacy of T-pox in individuals with monkeypox? Uh, let's start with uh, Dr. Sherwatt and then go on with Dr. Wilkin and then Dr. Peterson. Great, I was just saying that I think I would just reiterate what was said earlier, which is at present we have no data from randomized controlled trials that demonstrate safety or efficacy of ticovirumab for the treatment of monkeypox in humans. Um, you know, much of what we've seen has been individual case reports or case series with, with no control. So it's very difficult to know from a safety perspective, you know, how much of the safety that the safety profile we're seeing is driven by monkeypox disease versus the drug, you know, what the time frame for healing is like when you don't have a control arm. So that, that's why we're stressing the importance of having controlled data and making an assessment of safety and efficacy in this setting. So Dr. Wilkin, I know you have your stomps clinical trial in progress, but um, do you have any comments to make about efficacy at this point? Um, I understand uh, providers' desire for um, access to the drug. Uh, for people that we've treated at our institution, they do seem to respond very well, um, but we, we, we don't we don't have the controlled data. For the trial, we do have a data safety monitoring board that that monitors along the way, and we will look at the data early. And so ideally, if it is such a strong effect, we will be able to um, stop the study early. So um, I'm gonna add a, another little question onto that. Since you're involved in this, this clinical trial, so you're having to deal with these patients every day, what kind of side effects are you seeing? I know when, when Dr. Sherwatt made his presentation, he said nausea and headache and like less than 5% of people, but what are you seeing in, in your trial? Um, well, most of the experience comes through the expanded access uh, trial, and people um, tolerate the drug very well. Um, and sometimes it's a little difficult to separate out uh, the side effects from the drug from the underlying disease, uh, highlighting the need for controlled data. But um, 
I think people do very well with the drug. That's and they, and they probably like having to take it with uh, chocolate milk or ice cream as well, too. Um, Dr. Peterson, what is the current date on average time to symptoms improvement following initiation of treatment with TPOX? Uh, what about for patients with HIV? Yeah, thank you. So uh, we have um, monitored um, the data that we're receiving for patients uh, receiving tepivirumab under our EAIND and have summarized that in our recent MMWR. And what we have seen is that um, the median time from initiation of uh, the drug to subjective improvement reported by the patients is three days. And there isn't any difference um, in that um, time point uh, between uh, individuals with HIV or without HIV. Um, however, as noted before, this is not a randomized clinical control trial. We do not have a control group. So um, while we can do descriptive analyses of what we're seeing with these patients treated, um, it's not a rigorous, you can't draw rigorous conclusions in terms of either safety or efficacy uh, with what we're seeing. So Dr. Peterson, can TPOX be prescribed for pregnant or lactating individuals and children and a follow-up to that, is there any efficacy data in this population? Yeah, so the second question first, no, there's no efficacy data in any um, human monkeypox um, cases, uh, but this product can be considered for use in pregnant patients um, and in children and adolescents on a case-by-case -case basis. We have some limited um, case report information and there haven't been any severe adverse events um, associated with those case reports. Uh, and so we, with our limited experience to date, there's been no safety concerns. But again, this uh, should be a, a decision made um, in close consultation um, with the patient weighing all the risk and benefits of uh, potential treatment. Because of the uncertainties of dosing in children, especially younger children, um, our study collects detailed PK information that will run in near real time so that we can actually update the dose of the, for the next child enrolled. So we learn from one child, improve and refine the dosing for the next child. And so PK is the pharmacokinetics, right? Yes. Okay. So are there any, so Dr. Peterson, again, are there any known drug-drug interactions? Um, and are there any drug-drug interactions and in individuals receiving antiretroviral therapy and those receiving prophylaxis against opportunistic infections? Yes, so uh, I think I will defer to my other colleagues. There are some drug-drug uh, interactions that have been observed with um, some uh, uh, diabetic drugs. Um, and in terms of antiretrovirals, that has been uh, modeled, and there are a few um, interactions that have been identified. And I'll leave it to Dr. Sherwin, Sherwatt and Dr. Wilkin if they have other specific um, information. Okay, I would echo the same um, the same comments that were just made. There are drug drug interaction considerations. The healthcare provider should follow the instructions that are in NIAID's protocol for the RCT or CDC's protocol for the EAP. You know, based on the mechanism under which the the product is being given. There is also general information on drug interactions in the TPOX US prescribing information. And there's also information at the HHS HIV treatment guidelines website, um, particularly detailed information with respect to drug drug interactions in the setting of ART. But I would turn it over to Dr. Wilkins to talk about the approach to the RCT. 
Yeah, we um, worked uh, closely with the FDA and gathered the available PK information. And overall, it was thought for people with HIV that the magnitude of the drug interactions and the short duration of treatment, it was very unlikely for it to have any clinical impact. Uh, so we're not uh, doing anything specific with those drug-drug interactions. The one exception that was pointed out is injectable cabotegravir or ropivirine, at least initiating that injectable regimen, which has sort of a, a, a smaller um, window of error with that dosing, uh, but that's really the only limitation. So you, one of you mentioned uh, an interaction with the diabetes drug. Can you be a little more specific? Because a lot of our patients are on diabetes medication, unfortunately. It's um, rapiglinide, and what was seen was episodes of hypoglycemia in the drug-drug interaction study. I think that the, the actual mechanism of the hypoglycemia is a bit unclear, but that was the product. And it's actually outlined in the prescribing information for TPOX as one of the warnings. Dr. Sherwat, I knew you would know the answer. Thank you. Um, all right, uh, Dr. Sherwat, you talked about neurological findings and the animal toxicology studies. Can you expand on that just a little bit? Sure, so again, this information is also in the product labeling for the drug, so I'll go over that in a little bit of detail. So in a repeat dose toxicology study in dogs, convulsions were observed in one animal within six hours of a single dose of 300 milligrams per kilogram. And that's approximately four times higher than the highest observed human exposure at the recommended human dose based on what we call Cmax, which is the maximum or peak concentration that a drug achieves after dosing. Um, during this study, EEGs were also performed. And EEG findings in this particular animal were consistent with seizure activity during the observed convulsions. Tremors were also observed at a lower dose, the 100 milligram per kilogram dose, that's similar to the highest observed human exposure at the recommended human dose, also based on Cmax. Although in that case, there were no convulsions or EEG findings observed at this dose. And it's important to note also on the um, healthy human study that was done as part of the development program, no seizure events occurred. There was one asymptomatic subject who discontinued ticoviramat due to an abnormal EEG. The clinical significance of that finding is unknown. You took care of the nation. It's time for the nation to take care of you. The AMA stood by America's physicians and patients during the pandemic, and we're not stopping there. We're fixing prior authorization, leading the charge on Medicare payment reform, supporting telehealth, fighting scope creep, and reducing physician burnout. It's time to rebuild, and the AMA is ready. To learn more about the AMA Recovery Plan for America's Physicians, go to ama-assn.org slash time to rebuild. So I'm going to end uh, with one last question. When available, should physicians be vaccinated against monkeypox? Any takers? So currently, uh, CDC is not um, recommending that um, vaccine be used widely uh, in the vast majority of um, healthcare workers. There are specific healthcare workers for which vaccination is recommended, including laboratory workers who are doing the diagnostic testing for orthopox viruses. But by and large, what we've seen in this outbreak is that nosocomial transmission appears to be very rare. So we um, uh, believe that the 
risk to most healthcare workers um, is very low, and we're not currently recommending that um, vaccination be given um, to most healthcare workers at this time. Well, we have covered so much today. I'd like to thank Dr. Sherwat, Dr. Wilkin, and Dr. Peterson for joining us today. Thank you for such an incredibly insightful session on this important topic. And as we've heard from our panel of experts, this conversation is far from over. Thankfully, agencies like CDC and FDA are leading efforts to prevent spread of monkeypox, to respond with adequate treatment, and to make that treatment more accessible. During a virtual dialogue, the director of WHO, the World Health Organization, Tedros Adhanom Ghebreyesus, reminded us, we must continue to work hard to ensure that inequities in access to vaccines, testing and treatment during the height of the COVID pandemic are not repeated. At the end of August, nearly 28% of monkeypox cases in the U.S. were among Black individuals and 33% among Hispanics. AMA's headquarters are in Chicago, and Chicago's public health commissioner, Dr. Allison Ardwitty, said Chicago health officials have prioritized monkeypox vaccine distribution to providers who primarily serve Latino populations who comprise 31% of cases in the city of Chicago. Getting vaccines to those who need them most remains an ongoing and critical part of our response system and ultimately fighting this disease. Together, CDC, FDA, the AMA, and each of you here today can be a part of the collected effort to respond to monkeypox. WHO Director Gabriezas also said, if COVID has taught us nothing else, it's taught us that health is the most precious commodity on earth. It's a commodity that must be cherished, prized, and fought for every day. As you've heard here today, TPOX is available in our strategic national stockpile. ACIP, the CDC's Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices, recommends vaccination for those at high risk following a confirmed monkeypox exposure. Many thanks again to our wonderful guests and to all of you for taking time out of your busy day to join us. Thank you and have a great day. You can subscribe to Moving Medicine and other great AMA podcasts anywhere you listen to yours or visit ama-assn.org slash podcasts. Thank you for listening.